Ah, Christmas time. There's so much joy to the world, so much sweetness, so much togetherness. But that's not always the way the cookie crumbles. Sometimes I feel like I completely miss it. I mean, I know there's a reason to celebrate, but sometimes fear, doubt, or loss can hurt so much. And I'm so empty on the inside that all the frosting in the world can't fill me up. So, instead, I crumble. I fall apart. I feel alone. I'm broken. And from my view on the kitchen table, the world is broken too. The world needs hope. But then I remember. I remember that there was a baby born in a manger over 2,000 years ago who shows us just how much God cares about broken things. God knows about your broken heart and broken relationships. He knows when you're anxious and when you're scared. God knows about your mistakes and your failures. He knows because he's with you. You see, Jesus came to this earth as Emmanuel, God with us, to show us that our circumstances do not define our joy. From being a helpless baby in a manger, now the savior and king of everything. He did it for you. He did it for me. It's all in his name, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what we celebrate, the truth that God is with us. We can experience hope in any situation because we know the final score. Not the broken heart, not the fear or the doubt, not the sickness, not our brokenness. None of it defines us. Because Emmanuel is with us, we are defined by hope. Like the way the world uses hope and the way that, that the Bible describes hope is two totally different things. So often I hear people describe hope like it's this happy, wishful thinking, like I hope I get a puppy for Christmas. It's this wishing on a star. It's this crossing your fingers. It's throwing up an empty prayer. And I saw this most just last Sunday. I was here preaching in our series and, and sure enough, everyone else was watching on their phones that this football game, they call it the World Cup, right? Once every four years. And I'm watching these fans and they are hoping for their team. You got Argentina and France, and the irony is like they're hoping against each other, but they're hoping for each other. And so we don't talk about if you like France, but if you like Argentina, you're pretty happy, right? But it's this empty throwing up a prayer, hoping, and that's not the way the Bible describes hope at all. In fact, the way the Bible describes hope is trusting, waiting expectantly, and waiting with certainty. There's a confidence to biblical hope that I don't see in the way the world uses it. There's a confidence because really the location and the source of your hopes determines the strength and the power of it. Amen? Now again, maybe you're a guest here today. When I say amen, that just simply means, Pastor, I'm not asleep or I agree. I'll take either one. Amen? amen. All right. So, so biblical hope and worldly hope really feels like they're, they're totally different things. And I recognize that today as we gather, I, I see the word hope all over Christmas decorations. I see it all over the, the, the billboards. I hear about it in songs. Like even the songs tell us it's the most wonderful time of the year. But I really believe that's not the case for many people I interact with. We look at our life today and the reality is my marriage doesn't ever truly match up to the Hallmark movies, does it? Like I often joke that my marriage had issues the moment I joined it, right? And that's true for you too. That Amazon always over promises and under delivers. Like they deliver eventually, right? But 
The things that they deliver will never actually make us happy. And so we're longing for the next thing. We're hoping for something else that will just actually satisfy our deepest desires. See, you and I need relationships. We need relationship with God as Father. We need relationship with each other. He gives us each other as family to fight for our joy together. In fact, honestly, maybe that's why this Christmas doesn't quite feel like the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe you're looking back at relationships that are gone. Maybe you're reflecting back and your Christmas right now isn't what it used to be because they're no longer here or the marriage is falling apart or, or we lost someone to, to life circumstances. Can I just encourage you right now in this moment, whatever it is, that I'm with you in the reality that it might not be the most wonderful time of the year. Because the reality is everyone in this room has gaps. Now, when I say the word gap at Vintage Grace, I just mean it's the gap between your present state and your desired state. And we call that suffering. We call that pain. My wife and I have an ongoing joke that, that again, she has current and eternal pain in her life between the present state of my abs and her desired state of my abs, right? And that's just true. It's my gift to her because in the gap, there's something happening there. And we can laugh about gaps, but the truth of the matter is in, in a room this size, we may all have come from different places. Some of us literally just went skiing this morning. Maybe you traveled in from out of town to be with family, but we all share the reality that everyone in this room has gaps, that everyone in this room needs hope. And I want to pause just for a moment for you to think about your gaps. For me this year, after 20 years in ministry, this year it feels like the gaps are bigger than normal. And it's true, there, there's financial stuff, there's health stuff that we've wrestled with this as a family. There's our normal ongoing marriage stuff. It could just be that this Christmas, there's two guys that I love dearly that aren't with me anymore because of, of their battle with cancer. They're not here. It feels like, like we've lost them. And so the gaps in my life, and probably in yours too, require us to cry out for hope. See, I don't think hope is even just an emotion. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Amen? And so we gather today seeking the thrill of hope. And I want you to pause right now. There's nowhere else that you need to be right now. I want you to think about your gingerbread. Where in your life has your life just, this isn't it. It just feels like something is shattered and cracking and falling apart. And it could be your health. It could be your wealth. It could be your marriage and your relationships. Would you pause for a moment and identify and just say, here's my biggest gap. Here's where I feel like the cookie is crumbling and it's falling apart. And I want to pause there because my definition of hope is simply this. It's confidently waiting, not wishing in the gap. As we gather today as a church family, as a church body, I want to offer you hope. And hope in Jesus Christ is not wishing. It is waiting on him and trusting that his better is actually better. I see that in the Bible, in the book of Matthew. If your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew? It's the first book in the New Testament. I'll put the verses up on the screen. But we're going to see the story of a man named Joseph who held on to hope. And it wasn't just hope for Christmas. It was hope for an eternity. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Matthew doesn't actually tell us about the birth of Jesus. Luke does. Tomorrow, Christmas morning at 10 a.m., we're going to join with each other in our living rooms at YouTube, and we're going to look at the Luke account of the birth of Jesus. But what Matthew does is Matthew tells us where Jesus came from. 
So it's a different account here. Matthew gives us this perspective of Jesus's earthly father, Joseph. Now, culturally, there's a big contextual, like, like cultural gap between us and them. So just a little heads up, this is what marriage looked like for a first century Jewish family. It started actually with being engaged. Engagements typically were arranged and from a very young age. I have three children, 15, 13, and nine. If you want to meet me on the patio, put on your connect card that you're interested, right? Like that's how marriage happened. It was families that would meet at town and they would say, hey, this could work well for us. And their couples would get engaged at a very young age. They didn't actually become betrothed until about a year before marriage, much later in life. And when they were betrothed, that's what made that arrangement official. It's what made it binding. In fact, the only way you could break a betrothment was actually with divorce. And so that's the context for Mary and Joseph. They're not married yet. What I mean by that, the text says this, it's before they came together. You come together after the marriage party. If you don't know what come together means, ask your parents, they'll help you out. So right now they're betrothed. They're not married. And it's in this moment, think about this, any helpless romantics out there? Anyone other than me, right? Like before I got married, I wanted five kids. I had all of them named and everything. And I was like, I probably need a wife for that, right? Like, like I don't know Joseph if he was a helpless romantic or not, but it's in this moment of betrothal that the biggest gap of his life happens because his, his fiance comes to him and says, I'm pregnant and it's not yours. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels like a big gap. Any other young men out there that are engaged right now, would that mess up your plans? In fact, I think it's verse 18 and 19 that hope for Joseph could have been lost in a second. The gap gets big, it confronts him in the face, and Joseph has something that he must deal with. Nobody got that first Christmas what they wanted, right? Not Mary, not Joseph, not their parents. Nobody got what they wanted that first Christmas. And Joseph has to decide, what do I do when I lose hope? In fact, here's what it says. It says, Joseph was a just, faithful man. Church, please hear me. If you are a kingdom person, if you trust God and you are a godly man or woman, we are never afraid of doing tough things, but we'll always do them tenderly. That's a big difference than what I see often from Christians. We'll do tough things, but we do it tenderly. Joseph says this, he was a just and faithful man, unwilling to put her to shame and all the chaos that would come with that. So he resolves to divorce her quietly. When the gap is biggest, he's leaning in and that's when God shows up. God sends him an angel. Here's what verse 20 says. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Have you noticed that's like the go-to line for angels in the Bible? Right, like every, whether it's a Bible story or, or, or video that you've watched, angel shows up and everyone's like, don't be afraid. Why do we get so afraid by angels? Aren't they good things, good beings? Here's why. I think the line between heaven and earth is extremely thin. I think that we often forget that you and I are spiritual beings. We are not physical beings, not alone. We are spiritual beings. And so when a spiritual being shows up, we freak out because we forget what we actually are, made in his image, designed for an eternal relationship with God. And so we freak out. Now pay attention here. The angel doesn't say, don't freak out because of me. What's the angel says? He says, do not fear for your gap. Step into your gap that Mary to be your wife for that which she conceived is in her and it's from the Holy Spirit. Here's what the angel says. Don't be afraid of me. And also don't be afraid of the gap. How many of you guys, when you reflect on the gap, do you have a tendency to get afraid? Anybody? Don't lie, you're at church. <laughs> All of us. Oh, that's what fear is. It's fear of uncertainty. It's fear of the future. It's fear of not knowing what's coming next. And so the angel shows up and says, Joseph, don't be afraid of the future. Why? Pay attention. Because God is with you and because God is for you. Somebody say amen. 
He says, in this gap, God is doing something. It's actually the Holy Spirit that conceives this baby. Anyone else call crazy right now or just me? Like the angel shows up, and if it's anybody other than an angel, I'm like, I don't believe you, bro. And yet God shows up through an angel, and he meets with Joseph, and he says, do not be afraid. Now, how do we know we trust somebody? Well, if we actually follow them and do what they say. I still ask my kids all the time, do you trust me? Of course I do, Dad. Then why don't you clean your room, right? Like, do you trust me? The angel tells Joseph, do you trust me? Take her, and when you take her, as she gives birth, give him a name and call his name Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's the salvation of Yeshua, of Yahweh himself, because we all need saving. Saving from what? That he will save his people from their sins. And you're like, oh, here it comes. What is a sin? People ask me all the time, what is sin? Here's my definition of sin. Not trusting and not treasuring Jesus. Not trusting and not treasuring Jesus. You're like, Drew, I don't even know what that means. That sounds cute, but what's that mean? Here's what we do at Vintage. We use this stool as a metaphor almost every single week for the throne of our heart. That in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created Adam and Eve, and he created you and me in his image. And in the garden, there were no gaps. What I mean by that is there was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no sin. We trusted and we treasured God, and all of our needs were met by God. God, I need this. God, I need that. He's like, you just need me. We hang out. We fellowship. Life is good. The word good gets said over and over again in Genesis chapter one and chapter two at the beginning of the book. How long does the goodness last? Two chapters. What happens in chapter three? Adam and Eve, they knock God off the throne of their hearts. I believe this metaphorical throne has a vacancy for one person. It's a seat for one. It's not a seat for two. And God loved us so much that he let us reject him. He gives us free will. He doesn't force us to follow him. And in the garden, Adam and Eve and you and me and everybody in between has rejected God. We've gone to God and we've just simply said, God, I don't trust you. I don't treasure you. I don't believe. I actually want that seed for me. I want to know what it's like to be Lord of my own life. And because he loves us, he gives us what we want. He lets us choose to walk away from him. In fact, the story of the Israelites is a continual story on repeat, not just of them as God's people, but of all humanity, that we're all looking for things that will make us happy. And if nothing else this season, may we remember that Macy's will not actually matter. We're searching and striving for things. We're hoping for things that we think will make us happy. But the reality is, in the garden, we rejected God, and God gave us what we wanted so what we see is we see this continual history. Here's what the text says in verse 22. All this took place. This is Matthew giving a commentary now to the Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he says, guys, remember, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. See, from the garden all the way to the time of Jesus, the people of God were still pursuing God and then failing to be faithful to God. That's humanity's problem. God, I trust you. No, I don't. God, I trust you. No, I don't. Over and over and over again, he goes to Father Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Father Abraham is not faithful. All of his descendants are not faithful. You and me are not faithful. It's gap after gap for the Israelites. They're wandering in the wilderness. And yet the whole time, God is giving them these prophecies. Prophecy for me is a way that God just taps us on the shoulder and he simply says, Drew, you're in my seat. It's a way for us to be reminded that we cannot make a way back to God, but God has not given up on us. As we reject God, God continues to pursue us. And so he gives the Israelites these prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He says, I'm not done with you, even though you're done with me. I'm going to pursue you. In fact, God so loves the world that he sends his son. The Messiah comes, the chosen one, to make a way back to God, to make a way back to the garden. And that's what prophecy is. It's a reminder to the Jews that God is not done with you. 
In fact, one of the present prophecies that, that I was reading about not too long ago, this last year I went on a massive hiking trip all throughout Israel. I walked the, the walks of Jesus and it was an incredible time. And one of it, I ended up at the Mount of Olives. And you look across the Mount of Olives and you see the Temple Mount. You, you see where the Israelites return back after their exile and, and this place where they have landed there in Jerusalem. And I was reminded of one of the prophecies 500 years before Jesus is born. In the book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy that says, on the Mount of Olives, it'll be torn in two, as far from the east as from the west. Now again, imagine being in the Israelites at that time, 500 years before the Messiah, and you read this prophecy and you're like, yeah, right, whatever. How is this mount going to just split in half? Now fast forward 2,500 years in the year 1964. Nowadays we have things like geologists and we have these studies. And, and you know what geologists found underneath the Mount of Olives? And it won't take a while, I guess. A massive fault line running right down the middle. Why is that? Because it hasn't ripped yet, but at some point it's going to rumble. You know what's going to happen to the Mount of Olives? It's going to tear in half as far as the east is from the west. We know that. See, prophecy gives the doubting skeptic like myself certainty. It gives a certainty that God always fulfills his promises, that he's good, that he follows through, that his word is true, that his love endures forever. And so right now, Matthew reminds the Israelites, he taps them on the shoulders. He says, this was a prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Jesus did not get to tell everyone, this is what you call me. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the Jews easily missed Jesus. All the prophecies, they still missed. All the signs... All the wonders they continually missed, but God did not reject them. It says God with them. He came to us. So in this context, he comes through Father Abraham. They live in exile. They go to Egypt as the Israelites. They return to Israel, and now there's the birth of Jesus, born to Mary, born of a virgin. Mary and Joseph take this child. They raise him up. He lives this perfect life. For many of us, Jesus did come, and he died for us, but he also came to show us how to live. Jesus came to show us what it means to surrender the throne of our heart. To say, Father, what do you want? Not my will, but thy will be done. He showed us what kingdom living looks like. He showed us what it was like to live in the garden. And none of that would have happened if Joseph didn't listen to the angel. See, faith speaks, but faith also acts. I love that about Joseph. He has an encounter with God through this angel. But the question is, do you trust me? Do you believe? And the text goes on. It says this, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He did three things. He took his wife. He didn't divorce her. He scrapped his plans because God was not in them. And he said, God, I'm going to follow your way. The second thing is he knew her not. That means they didn't come together, these earlier verses that we read. And then the third thing is he names him Jesus. He names him Jesus. And all he does, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't. But then he dies the heinous death that you and I deserve to die. Emmanuel means God is with us. Jesus means God is for us, that he saves us that he lived the life I couldn't and that he died the death that I deserved and rose again three days later, Jesus reminds us that hope is a person, not just an emotion. The first Christmas, Joseph's gaps were big. I'm confident your gaps are big too. Mine as well. I look in this room and I know many of you and I know what's really happening and for many of you, I don't know what's really happening. What I do know is that we all share the gaps in our life. And we all have access to the Father because the Father sends the Son to us. And my hope for you is that you would experience hope. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God for us. My gaps aren't unique. Health issues, finances, relational issues, they're, they're not unique to me. And I don't know about you, but when I get in the moment of a gap, my prayer life is often this. God, just get me out of the gap. I don't care how, just get me out of my present state and get me to my desired state. Does that sound like your prayer life anybody else? I want to take a little pressure off your prayer life for a second. 
Currently in this room, you are either in a gap or you're coming out of a gap. And you're like, no, 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 not me. My life's perfect. Would you ask your kids, hey, husband, wife, children, tell me my gaps. They'll tell you honestly. Pastor said, be honest. We all have gaps. But the reality is we're in one of three places. We're in the middle of one right now, which I hope you've already identified. We're actually coming out of one and we're thankful for that. Or the reality is this, you're stepping into one. You're like, no, that's not me. That's because you're getting ready to go into one. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Vintage Grace. That's the truth. Avoiding gaps is not the goal. Gaps is the result of a fallen, broken world. Finding God in the gap, that's the goal. We don't have to look hard. He's not hiding from you. He's waiting for you to turn to him. That changes everything. That makes the gaps in our life actually gains because God is with us, because God is for us, because he is Emmanuel, because he is Jesus. And for what it's worth, gaps always appear clear in the rearview mirror of life. You sit back and you say, oh, that's what you were doing. Not always. We don't always know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future, amen? That changes things. It means I don't have to stress. It means I don't have to fear. I don't have to be overwhelmed with anxiety. It doesn't mean that the world isn't still dark. It doesn't mean that the world isn't still broken. It doesn't mean that my gaps aren't still real. It's just my gaps are transformed by the power of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us and God for us. It means that when I lose my friends, I think of it differently. Both these men in my life trusted and treasured Jesus. I love them dearly. When we say the word lost, especially in our cultural context, that typically means we don't know where they are. When you say I lost my keys, it's simply because you don't know where they are. I didn't lose my friends. I know exactly where they are because they trusted and treasured and put their hope in Jesus. They're with him. That's what I want for you this Christmas. That's what I want for you more than anything else is that you would experience the certainty of having your hope be in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So three things I think we see from Joseph. Here's the first one. Look for God in your gap. And it's not always easy, not because he's hiding, but because we're blind. We need brothers and sisters in our life that will come alongside us and say, hey, Drew, what about this? Like, invite someone to into your gap and say, hey, do you see God here? What's God doing? It's literally what we do every Sunday in our gatherings. It's literally what we do in our life groups. We gather every Sunday, except for this Sunday, 10 a.m. online YouTube, but every other Sunday. We gather in this room to fight for our joy in Jesus. We gather in living rooms to say, hey, look at my gap, invite people in, be a part of a family, not for a day, not for a season, but for an eternity of tomorrows. Would you recognize that God, like Joseph and like you, has a bigger plan for your gap than you could ever dream or imagine? And God is good all the time, and all the time he is good, amen? The second thing is give God your gap. If you're like me, you have a tendency to give it and then take it back the next day. I'll give it at church because it feels good right now, but then you take it back. Knock it off. Give God your gap. He's going to deal with it better than you are. Get off the throne of your heart. Surrender your struggles and say, God, this is yours. Something I learned at Christmas is simply this. That Christmas morning reminds us it is not actually me who's holding on to hope. It's hope that's holding on to me. I'm convinced it's why you're here today. I'm convinced we're all here today to look for God in our gap, to give him our gap, and if you never have yet, to fully surrender the gap in the throne of your heart. To look at the throne of your heart, maybe you never done that, you never actually fully trusted Jesus to actually give him back his seat. In America, something is ours possessively in one of two ways. We design it or we purchase it. Please hear me, the gospel tells us Jesus did both for you. He designed the throne of your heart and like all of humanity, you've rejected him. I have rejected him. But God, being rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, he gave his son for you to purchase the throne back. But like every 
Christmas present under the tree, you actually have to do something with it. Someone has to give it and someone has to receive it. We have this tradition in our family that we give and exchange gifts. I don't know about you guys. That's what we do on the 25th. I've never had an end of a day be like, wow, all these gifts are left unopened. Everybody wants it because they think it's good for them. Those presents won't satisfy, but Jesus will. But you can't just let it be given. It has to be received. You're like, Drew, I don't know what it means to receive Jesus in the throne of my heart. I didn't even know I had a throne of my heart. It's very simple. I'd encourage you to just simply say a prayer. To just right now, we often pray this way. We just open our hands. We lay them flat on our laps. Would you just join with me, all of you? Just open your hands. And right now, you got three prayers that you can give God. Say, God, I want to see you in my gap. Would you help me see you? God, I want to give you my gap. I've been holding on. I want to release that to you. And if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you just take a moment and pause and say, God, I want to trust you for all of the gaps of my life. I want to actively surrender the throne of my heart. I want to give it back to you. The gospel is simply this, that he who knew no sin became your sin. That's the great exchange of Christmas. That he lived his life for your life. That he died his death so that death would no longer separate you, but that instead you'd be a son. And so you just cry out to God. You say, God, I've never been prayed before, but Lord, I want to give you my heart. I want to give you the throne of my heart. You made it. You designed it. It's yours. And I surrender it to you right now, God take this as my gift back to you. My life is yours. And I repent of sitting on the throne of my heart. I repent of clinging to my own way and not trusting and not treasuring you. And now I give it back to you for your glory and for my good. And if you said that prayer, would you tell the person that invited you? Would you talk to me after service? You put on your connect card because we are not designed to enter the darkness alone. The light of the world comes and he has overcome. Amen. It's one of my favorite moments that we have at the end of every Christmas Eve service is a candle lighting moment. I want to invite you to grab your candles. And as you do, I want to give you some instructions because they matter. Because again, the reality is there's a cute little girl sitting in front of you and I don't want you to burn her hair, okay? So please pay attention to these instructions. First of all, put your lighter away. We don't need it. I got mine. We're good. Do not light your candle. Stay with me. The reason being is that the reality is this is we can't bring ourselves light of the world. The light of the world had to come to us. And so I want you to wait until your neighbor comes. And when your neighbor has the candle, I want you to actively take your candle and go this direction. Don't have them come to you. That's how you pour oil on their head. Stop that. Your neighbor has light and then you're going to take this. And I want you to do this as an act of worship. I want you to think about the light of the world has come to you, but the reality is he asked you to come to him and to receive him. And so you just go this direction. And then you go there so that your neighbor can come to the light. Does that make sense? I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And as we stand, we're going to sing this song. And it's going to take a couple minutes and we've got plenty of time to worship God and to remember that the light has come and invaded the darkness and light always overcomes. Let's continue to worship right now.